Okay, so I apologize for the, uh, we missed, I think, two weeks or three weeks I was traveling, uh, but uh, happy to be resuming, and uh, hopefully we have this series, and then I have to look at the calendar, but probably makes sense uh, right from there to go to, um, to Purim. I think we'll by that point uh, be ready for Purim. Uh, so very, very exciting. We're making uh, good progress throughout the, uh, the calendar year. And a topic which I think, you know, we could come back to many, many times, uh, because even if we do a two-part series now, we won't come close to, uh, to finishing the topic. It's really a, a book-length type of topic. Uh, and that is the mitzvah of Kibrav Ein, which is obviously both important but also complex. Uh, and uh, perhaps at every age, and maybe at specific ages even more than others, a complicated and challenging mitzvah. Uh, you know, for those whose parents have already passed away, perhaps uh, you know, they wish that they had the challenge of still being able to do Kibrav Ein uh, on a very meaningful level. And on the other hand, as those of us who have parents, uh, one or both, and as they get older, we know what it means to be part of the sandwich generation. Uh, I'm not sure who came up with that phrase, but uh, it seems to be very aptly uh, describing the fact that sometimes uh, those of us who are still actively parenting our younger children and at the same time uh, have responsibilities towards our parents, especially as they get older, uh, this can be uh, a challenging moment. But the truth is that Kippur Aim is a demanding and multifaceted mitzvah at whatever age we are. Perhaps we're just at an age now where we're sensitive to it. But the, tr- the truth is that uh, it really is an incredibly important but absolutely uh, demanding mitzvah. And it's one that uh, for quite a few years now is something that's always been of great interest to me, you know, not only hopefully to observe, uh, since I feel very close to my parents, uh, but also to study and to teach. And I've had opportunities numerous times in yeshiva uh, to speak, you know, over 15, 16, 17 part series or to, for Holzman to teach them. So obviously can't condense all of that into two shurim, but I, I think for today was an easy one. This is a very important introductory shir. We'll kind of give an overview and then I'll pick a, a second topic for next week, something of a specific, uh, challenging example of Kibrav Aim perhaps or one dimension of it. Um, and then, um, we will, uh, we'll leave it for then as we probably move on to Purim. Uh, but as I say, certainly, uh, whether it's later this year or hopefully many years of this uh, series of Shir continuing, there's much, much more of Kibbut Aim that we will not cover in the next two weeks that we'll be able to, uh, to come back to. So we have a nice group of people on Zoom. I hope you can hear me. And uh, for the various regulars who told me they couldn't come, so it's being recorded. Uh, and we have Baruch Hashem. I'm not alone at the table either. So uh, good to have everyone together. So let's get started. Uh, it's, uh, this might be the most sources ever put on a sheer, uh, a source sheet for this uh, group. Uh, so let's see if we can get through it. Uh, touching as many of the sources inside as possible, but not getting bogged down. Because uh, this really is an overview sheer, but I think it'll cover many, many important and interesting and fascinating uh, ideas. So if you take a look uh, at the opening of your sheet... Uh, just the opening three sources on the page are, you know, the place where we have to start, and that is just the sources in the Chumash uh, for the mitzvah of Kibar Aim. Now, the truth is, I'm using the term Kibar Aim as a little bit of a shorthand, uh, because there actually are two different mitzvos, even though we will probably be focusing on the one, but we'll, we'll delineate the differences between them. But in sources one and two, you have the two different versions of the Asasa Debros, one in Yisro, of course, and the second source from Parshas Ve'eschanan, where, in both cases, the fifth Dibra is the mitzvah of Kibar Avaim. As the Pasuk says in source number one, Kabir Esavicha of Esimecha, you should honor your father and your mother, And we are struck right away by the fact that the Torah rarely gives us a promise of reward for a specific mitzvah. And especially since this certainly sounds like it's a mitzvah, uh, excuse me, it's a reward in this world. That's certainly very, very rare 
uh, in the Chumash, and that is something that Chazal uh, take note of, and we will see shortly. Uh, this idea is basically repeated in the second Dibra, although there, is, uh, there are some nuanced differences between the formulations. The only one I'll call your attention to now, and we'll, we'll come back to explaining what that means, or what, what the exact idea is, but in source number two, uh, this is from Ve'eschanan, so there again we see Kabir Savich Vasimecha. But here we have an insertion of a phrase, which I want to call your attention to, Kasher Tzivcha Hashem Elokecha. What is that referring to? What Hashem tells us, the, the Dibros tell us in Parshas Ve'eschanan, honor your father and your mother, as Hashem has commanded you. Right? That phrase, as Hashem has commanded you, on the one hand you'll say it's obvious, of course every mitzvah is Hashem commanding you. It's not mentioned in Yisro. So what, what is that doing here? What is it adding, and why is that specifically in Parshas of Eschanan? That the Mepharshim take note of. And then the rest of the Pasuk, more or less, more or less, is a recapitulation of what we already saw. Again, this dramatic and somewhat striking promise of reward of long life if we honor our parents. All of this is, technically speaking, the mitzvah of Kibud of Va'im. The source number three is a Pasuk, of course, in Parshas Kedoshim, which tells us that there's a second mitzvah. We're not honoring our parents, but Mora or tira, mora av'eim. That is sometimes translated as to fear, uh, but perhaps more uh, accurately would be awe or revere uh, one's parents. Again, the idea of actually being scared, uh, the way we think of that, especially in a modern sense, I don't think that that is, not only is that not obligatory, I don't think that's healthy. And if a child was scared of his or her parents, I would have serious, serious concerns about what's going on in that house. Uh, so I don't think that's at all what the Torah is demanding. But it means a certain sense of yiras hakavod, if you will, a certain awe. Uh, and things, as we shall see as we go around this year, I think there's a very fascinating dynamic, which I think plays out particularly in nuanced and sometimes challenging ways in our modern world, of a balance between a certain level of intimacy and closeness that we want to have with our parents or our children, us being the sandwich, uh, but at the same time, not being too close. Right? We're not our children's friends, uh, and there should be some level of distance uh, as close as one would want to be with one's parents, uh, it's not the same thing as a contemporary. This is not a horizontal relationship. This is a vertical relationship. And that, I think, is what's being alluded to in the idea uh, of Mora. So that's just, you know, Aleph Bays. We have to start with the basics. That is the idea, of course, uh, in the Psukim themselves. What is uh, interesting, and I want to call your attention to, just again as an important introductory comment, uh, is something that comes up in a number of statements of Chazal, and I think is reflected in the fact that, for example, if you take a look in the Shulchan Aruch, in source number 7, skip for a second to source number 7, you have something which is very uncharacteristic. It says the Shulchan Aruch, source number 7, Tzarch lizaher ma'od, v'kibit ava'im, v'imov umamoraam. Now, you have to be very, very careful. Very stigious, you work hard, do your best, to keep it ava'im. On the one hand, that's true, that's not a controversial thing to say, but I'm calling your attention to it because if I'm not mistaken, if you take a look at many other areas of halacha in the Shulchan Arach, it does not get this introduction. It does not say, you have to, in Shabbos. in Tefillin. in Kashrus. Right? You know, it's, it's like, you know, what, what you're going to say that about one, it really begs the question, right? You're playing favorites. You know, this is the most important mitzvah. This is the only one you have to be careful. Why? And I didn't do a search in every area of Shulchan Aruch. That would have taken me a long time, or at least it would have taken the computer a few seconds, uh, and then it'll be a long time to review everything the computer said. But, uh, but I'm quite confident in saying that this is not characteristic in the Shulchan Aruch. So why is it? What about Kibar Aim is so special and so important that would require such special uh, attention? So I'd like to suggest that 
what the Shacharach is alluding to is what the sources uh, in 4, 5, and 6, just to give you brief examples, uh, highlight something which is really of an important dimension of Kibar Aim, which may have practical implications, but at minimum, at minimum, it should really shape our attitude, our shkafa, I guess if you will, uh, towards this mitzvah. Take a look, for example, at, back up at source number 4. Says the Medrash, okay, this is Chazal, this is in the Medrash, and here is the Medrash right away noting the fact that it is, again, uncharacteristic, striking, that the Torah gives the reward, a promise of a specific reward in the Pesukim themselves. Not typical. Says the Medrash, Shtei mitzvos, gila baruchu matan scharan. There's only two examples of this positive mitzvos where the Torah itself promises the reward. One of them, kalos It's pretty easy to do, actually. But the other one, chamura shebechamuros. Very challenging, very difficult to do. What are those? So the Medrash continues and says, what's the easy one where there is a promise? Shooing away the mother bird. Right? There the Torah tells us in Devarim, v'harach the yamim. Right? And in fact, that's the famous story where one of the Chachamim saw a child doing that and then he died young and that caused all sorts of theological questions because there is a promise. There's a promise that a person will live long life if they fulfill that mitzvah. Okay, not our topic. However, what you see it underlined at the end of source number four says the Medrash in continuation. What is the second example? Chamur Shebechamuros, which may be a kind of a double entendre. It's very, very important, but I think it also seems to imply that it's very, very demanding. It's not an easy mitzvah. And that is Kibar Av Va'im. After all, there the Pasuk says, as we saw, So we see here, So it's very interesting, again, this is not our broader topic, but it's interesting, says the Medrash, that you have one mitzvah which is quite easy to do, one mitzvah which is quite hard to do, and yet both have this striking example of having this very demanding promise, uh, uh, excuse me, this very incredible promise of long life. So already we see there's something very, very special about there is this incredible, incredible reward. But again, this doesn't really answer the question. This begs the question. What would be so special about Kibar Aim? Why is there a special reward to this? Why is there Shulchan giving an extra emphasis of how important we have to be, how, how much we have to pay attention to this? So I think the answer to all of this is found in source number five. And this is very, very uh, important. And I think it will really, again, it may have practical implications, but at minimum, at minimum, it has hashkafic implications. Let's take a look. Let's read together uh, source number five. Says the Gemara, this is in Masechet Kedushin, on Daf Lamed. This is a few dapim in the Gemara there in Kedushin. It's not the only place, but it's one of the main places where the Gemara talks about this mitzvah. Says the Gemara as follows. Quotes the Pasuk, The Pasuk we started with from the Sarsa Debros, you have to honor your parents. And the Gemara here, in a number of successive examples, one after the other, line after line, the Gemara gives parallels. It notes parallels between the language that the Torah uses when it comes to our parents and language that is used in Torah or Nevi'im for how we relate to Hashem. So for example, says the, the Gemara, it says, Kabed, honor your parents. And it says in Mishlei, Kabed, as Hashem. What do we see from here? Hishve hakasuv, kibar av, ve'eim likibar amakom. Evidently, there's some comparison, some common ground between honoring our parents and honoring Hashem. Or in the next line, the Gemara notes the mitzvah of Yira, or of Mora, Ish imo v'aviv tira'u. But then, says the Gemara, we have a similar language, Dvarim perek vav, when it comes to Hashem, there's a mitzvah of Yira shemaim, et Hashem lokecha tira. Again, says the Gemara, Hishva kasuv, Moras avaim, lemoras amalkam. Again, we see a comparison between the awe or the fear of parents, and the awe and the fear towards Hashem. 
Another example, says the Gemara in the third line, there's a prohibition, we didn't even discuss it yet, uh, hopefully it's not so practical for us, there's a prohibition of cursing your parents. Makalal aviv imo, it's a capital crime, most you must. But says the Gemara, guess what? There's a similar prohibition, you can't curse God. Again, we have a comparison that the Torah is comparing between cursing God and cursing Hashem. The Gemara is so convinced of this comparison that it actually feels the need to point out that there's one place where you can't compare. That is that there's another mitzvah when it comes to parents, and that is the prohibition of hitting them. Right? So that's another pasuk which the Gemara then quotes, how there is a particular specific prohibition about hitting, God forbid, a parent. So then, of course, the Gemara points out that obviously that is not going to have a parallel when it comes to Hashem. You can't hit and physically uh, assault Hashem. But the very fact that the Torah needed to point out something that's so obvious, right? you know, your kids could have told you that. Right? I think it's just suggestive of the fact that the Gemara is already you know, very, very deep into this idea that there seems to be an equation between the way we relate to our parents and the way we relate to Hashem. These three examples are so convincing in creating such a strong equation, the Gemara even needs to tell us something that would have been obvious anyway, but, but not the fourth. But that's not clearly... The Gemara is, I think, illustrating the fact that that is not somehow breaking the pattern or showing that there is no equation. It's just an obvious exception to the rule. But the rule seems to be maintained. And the Gemara itself is very aware of this. And the Gemara says, and this is the part that I think is really important and is very striking, this is the last three lines, we'll read it inside, says the Gemara, the middle of that third, fourth line on your sheet, V'chein bedin. V'chein bedin means, and so it's logical. So it's compelling. It has to be. It's not just a coincidence that, you know, if you know enough Chumash, you know enough Tanakh, you're familiar with, you know, certain word patterns. It's much more than that. There's something deeply, uh, logically, compellingly comparable between the way we relate to our parents and the way we relate to Hashem. And how is that? Says the Gemara, very, very famous teaching. Maybe some of you are familiar with this. Sheshloshtan shutafin bo. Because in fact, every child needs to remember that there are three partners in his or her creation. And now the Gemara takes a step back and says, let me give you that actual teaching. Tan Rabbanan. Shlosha shutfen hein ba'adam. There are three partners in every child and every person. Kadosh Baruch Hu, Aviv, V'imo. Now this I think could be understood in many, many levels. Uh, but I think on the most basic level, in fact, the Gemara itself, I didn't give this to you, the Gemara itself actually describes, I'm not sure this is necessarily intended to be scientific, but the Gemara actually describes specific physical characteristics of every child. This comes from the father, this comes from the mother, and this comes from Hashem. Eye color, hair, eyes, skin, different things like that. Again, I don't think we need to get into the issue of did Chazal really know science well or not, but they're trying to anticipate genetics in that Gemara. It's a very, very fascinating thing. But not just genetics from parents. The Gemara is ascribing certain specific characteristics that come from Hashem. I don't think one has to go so liter- take that so literally, and I think there may be mystical interpretations of this Gemara, which are beyond us. But I, the way I, this Gemara always resonated with me uh, is actually based on something that we all know. Unfortunately, some of us in the community even may have had times suffered from, but we all know about it, uh, and I think the Gemara knew about it on some level too, and that is the fact that even though the act of making a baby, on the one hand, is the most simple thing, we, not complicated. And yet at the same time, we all know that if Hashem doesn't bless that union, people can struggle with infertility. The same act can be done many, many times, where the couple is trying to conceive, and nothing happens. And other times, you know, there are people who have easy time conceiving. Other, 
And sometimes there, you know, nowadays there are times where the doctors can you know, pinpoint it and explain it. And sometimes, thank God, Baruch Hashem, the field of fertility has advanced so much. I mean, there are literally millions of babies, you know, in day schools around the world who five years, let alone 15 to 20 years ago, would not have been alive. I mean, it's, in all fields of medicine, there have been incredible advances. But fertility, in my uh, layman's uh, impression, may be one of the fields that's most advanced in the last generation. It's incredible. Hodel Hashem Kitov. Uh, but there are times where the doctors, even to this day, either they can't figure out the problem, or if they figure out the problem, but they can't figure out the solution, and they sometimes really just don't know. There is a tremendous mystery, despite all of the advances. There remains a medical mystery many, many times about conception and fertility. Right? So I appreciate the doctors saying it's a mystery. We say that's Hashem. Now, why would Hashem make it difficult for this couple or that couple? That is certainly beyond me. But I think this is what the Gemara is alluding to. That as simple and as obvious as it is, as it goes back literally to Adam and Eve, uh, they could figure out without anyone teaching them. Right? They didn't have any parents to teach them the birds and the bees. And they figured out how to have a child. Nevertheless, there's still something mysterious about it. You need a, sh- a third partner uh, who has to be there. Um, again, this reflects the life of intimacy between husband and wife and the Kedusha that should be involved, which is not our topic. Uh, but I think on the most basic level, the Gemara is telling us if you don't have the active participation or the blessing, however you want to formulate it, of Hashem, it doesn't matter what the parents want or trying to do, the husband and wife, you will not be able to have a child. Now, I didn't put this on the Gemara, on the sheet. There's another Gemara uh, that actually says in Masech Tainis that there are certain things that Hashem has the key to. That's the term the Gemara uses. And I think it's a very apt metaphor. The Gemara talks about a key that are certain things that Hashem will never give over to mankind. And one of those is the key to fertility. So at least in my mind, again, I think medical science, I think and this is a good thing, is trying to find that key. And they're, they're advancing and they're making incredible advances. And at the same time, Hashem is letting you know there's always going to be some mystery about life and the creation of life. Again, it's the most simple and yet the most incredible thing human beings can do. And yet, there's always some deep mystery in there. And as a result, we're obligated... Yeah, I'm not saying it's obvious, but this is what we have to educate ourselves and our children. We're obligated to remind ourselves... That as simple and as seemingly obvious and basic and biological as this is, there's nothing more biological than that. And yet at the same time, ultimately it's something that's way beyond human biology. There's something divine about it, being able to have a child. And that is because you need a third partner in the room, so to speak, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So says the Gemara, in light of all that, now let's get back to the Gemara, in light of all that, the fact that Hashem was an active third partner in the creation of every single child, as a result, says the Gemara, third, three lines down, not only is there the mother and the father, but also HaKadosh Baruch Hu, B'zman she'adam mechabi desavi vesimo, when you honor your parents, God says, Amor HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Mala'ani alehem ki'ilu darti b'neem v'kibduni. Hashem views it as if you're honoring Him. He's the silent partner. So every time you honor your parents, you're really honoring Hashem, says the Gemara. And of course the opposite, Nebuch, is also true, right? <laughs> Everything comes at a price. B'zman she'adam mitza'er esavi vesimo. If you're disrespectful, if you lose your temper, you ignore your parents, you cause them tsar in one way or the other, says the Gemara in a very kind of a poetic, rhetorical flourish, Garsh Barucho says, oh, it's good I don't live in that house, because then they'd just be making me miserable, these kids. In other words, what do you see from this Gemara? That there's some dimension of honoring Hashem, of a mitzvah that's by Adam Lamakom, every time we interact with our parents. It's not just about the people in the room. 
There's another silent, invisible partner who's there all the time. And when we're doing the right thing and showing the proper respect to our parents, it's not just that the parent will feel good and that's a mitzvah of itself. There's a separate bonus mitzvah that's happening also, which is we're honoring HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And if Rahman al-Islam were falling short, as all of us do from time to time, uh, with our parents, so it's not just that we've let our parent down, not just that we may have disappointed or even worse, disrespected our parent, it's that we've somehow let down, disrespected and disappointed HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I won't read it inside, uh, all of it, but if you take a look in the Rambam, it's verse number 6, he makes this very clear as well. He quotes you know, these broader ideas about Kibar Aim, and then says the Rambam, Kiderech, and that's the key word, Kiderech, Shetziva al Kibbut Shemo, just like, just like, the Rambam is giving you an equation, just like you have to honor Hashem, we honor our parents. What do you mean just like? The answer is because there's a dimension of honoring Hashem every time we honor our parents. And I would suggest, I think it's clear, that that is not only what motivated some of the earlier sources, but it's also why the Shulchan Archon, source number 7, says, Because unlike other mitzvahs, which have a clear dimension, whatever they are, the importance of kashrus is self-evident, the importance of Shabbos, whatever it is, but that we can see, so to speak, and Shabbos, and kashrus, and Tarsamashpacha, all those things. Kibar Aveim has an invisible dimension. Which is not just invisible, which means that we could easily, it's elusive and we might miss it, but it's also one of, if not the most important dimension of the mitzvah. And that is that it is very much part of the frame of how we're relating to Hashem, is how we relate to our parents. I also think that this probably explains why there's such great reward for the mitzvah. Now I will note, this is important, especially for those of us uh, who have active roles in helping our parents uh, you know, as they get older, or, and or as they make aliyah, and or as lots of different circumstances. So the Rabbeinu Bachai in source number 8, you should just be aware, this is, you know, maybe some people might need to pin this up uh, in various places, or save this to their phone or something so as a reminder. Rabbeinu Bachai in source number 8 quotes from, from the great <laughs> Rabbi Sajigon, that the reason that Hashem promises a reward of long life is because sometimes, especially as parents get older, Kivraim gets harder. See, you re- take a look at some words underlined. Sometimes they move in. And sometimes they stay for a long time. Sometimes they stay for longer than you anticipated. Right? He's saying it like it is. Sometimes it's a burden. Sometimes it gets hard for the parents to you know, impose this on their children. But you know, that's just part of the deal. And therefore, says Rabbein Abachai from Absajigon, that's why the Torah gives a special reward that you should know, even if you'll have some part of your life where you, you know, are largely, or at least partially, or maybe even more than partially, you know, giving over of your time and energy, not to your spouse, not to your children as much as you would have, but to your parent, Hashem promises you there will be many more years that you'll be able to live in which you'll be able to have that, uh, you'll be refreshed and be able to give you know, more exclusive attention to other people, or to yourself if you need it, or to other people. But yes, says Rabbi Sajikon, we can, be, we can admit the truth. Sometimes it gets hard, especially as the parents get older. Uh, it, it can be difficult. So on a very simple level, you know, to me that's a little bit of a chizlik that, that Rabbi Sajikon acknowledges that. But I also think that part of the answer clearly relates to what we're talking about, which is simply that there's a special reward because this is not just as important as our parents are, this is also that we're honoring Hashem. I want to note something else which I think is also uh, really very striking. Again, uh, at minimum, it it should help us with Hashkafa, and it may, as you shall see in a few moments, have a practical implication. And that is a very famous insight 
of the Ramban in source number nine. If you imagine in your, in your mind's eye, when you close your eyes, or when you're either seeing the movie, or just how you imagine the, the yeah, Sarasa Dibros, you know, even when you first learned Chumash or something, right? How do you imagine the Dibros looking? Right? None of us ever saw the Dibros, but we basically imagine these two squares with five on one side and five on the other. So you're in good company, that's what the Ramban says. But the Ramban points out, if that's the case, how did the Torah decide, how did Hashem decide to group five on the right side and five on the left? So what's, there are all sorts of clever uh, divisions that people suggest. But the most obvious division is Benam Lamakom, Benam Lachavero. All good. Except for the fact, says Ramban, that we seem to have a problem then. Because if you were actually counting on your own, you probably would suggest that there are four Benam Lamakom, concluding with Shabbos, and six that relate to our relationship with other human beings. Starting with which one? Kibbut Avaim. And yet, that's not how the Torah did it. The Torah didn't have two tablets, one of four and one of six. There are two tablets, five and five. And says the Ramban, if you take a look towards the end of source number nine, Chamisha b'kibbut haborei v'chamisha b'letovar ha'adam. Ki kabir esavicha v'kavar ha'kel. Again, on the one hand, you might say it's obvious, just the way the luchos are set up but I still think it's quite a chiddush. Says the Ramban on some level, Kibbut of Aim is a mitzvah ben Adam l'makom. I think it's obvious that it also has dimensions of Kibbut of ben Adam l'chavero. I would think. But the chiddush, he says, is that we actually view this as about, now if you just saw this Ramban, or you just were trying to be perplexed by the, you know, the, the setup of the luchos, I don't know if we're, how far you'd get. But in light of the Gemara that we saw, and the source that we've seen until now, we understand. We already saw this in the Gemara. Hashem told us in that Gemara, when you honor Hashem, excuse me, when you honor your parents, Hashem's in the picture. There's a way of, of viewing our parents as proxies in a certain sense for the third invisible partner in the relationship, and that is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Sefer HaChinuch, in source number 10, I think is a very, very powerful source, and I want to read that more inside together. The Sefer HaChinuch, I think, helps us... He, understand not only both dimensions of Kibbut Ravim, but, and this will be my kind of elaboration uh, on the Sefer HaChinuch, what exactly does that mean? In what sense? Again, it's weird. right? What does that mean to say that honoring my parents is a form of honoring Hashem? I mean, I love my parents, but they're not God. Are they? I mean, they're not. You know, yet it's nice to think of them that way, especially when we're younger. At some point, every child had that moment. You know, we can't always, I don't know if I can pinpoint when that is, but there is this, you know, crushing moment where you actually grow up and you realize your parents aren't perfect, you know, and they can't protect you from everything, right? When I was a kid, I thought my parents had superpowers and nothing could ever be bad in my life because anything that would have been bad, my parents would have taken care of it. I think that's a simon that my parents were very loving and supportive and helpful parents. But at some point, you grow older, you realize, you know what? Things might actually not be perfect for, in me in my life, and there's nothing my parents can do to help, but they can't solve every problem that I have. They can't protect me from everything. And as you get older, you notice imperfections in your parents, etc., etc., right? So they're not perfect. So what is, exactly does this mean that it's honoring Hashem when we honor my parents? So let's take a look at source number 10. This is the Sefer HaChinuch. And he focuses, I think, appropriately on both dimensions. He talks about the human dimension, but then I think he gives us a window into understanding what it might mean from a Benam Lamakam perspective. So the first thing says the Sefer HaChinuch is, Shiroi Adam Shiyakir V'yigmol Chesed L'misha Asa Imotova. Okay, now the Ramban doesn't focus on this. It's hard for me to believe that the Ramban wouldn't agree, 
But I'm being honest, the Ramban didn't focus on it. But the Sefer Chino says, what's the first thing you need to know about Kibra Aim? Hakar Satov. Benam Lachavero, the way we would have thought if I just had polled the, the, the audience you know, beforehand. Why should you honor your parents? I think this is the most obvious and intuitive reason. Again, obvious and intuitive if you had loving parents. For those who Nebuch didn't, that's, it becomes a real challenge. And I don't know if that'll be next week's year, but I have a whole shear and it's a very complex topic. Again, I've, 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 and I've had to answer Shilas on this. What do you do when someone grew up in an abusive home? What obligations does an adult child have to the parents now that they're out of the house when there's frankly no love lost? And maybe even worse than that, right? That's a very real, very tragic situation. But let's hope and assume that everyone here is not dealing with that. And uh, hopefully the default case is a loving home. If not perfect, but hopefully a loving, a loving home. So says the Sefer Chinuch, the first thing is, Hakar Satov. After all, lo ye novel minkar tov, right? There's nothing worse, says the Sefer Chinuch, than being an ingrate. And not having a kar satov. It's the midarah, it's the worst thing. Rather, says the uh, Sefer Chinuch, yitain el libo ki av aim hin sibas hayosab olam. Right? You wouldn't be alive if it wouldn't be for your parents. Therefore, number one, you wouldn't have anything without them. They deserve your respect. Number two, he says, Once, once, we realize everything our parents did for us. Not only did they give us life, but they did our homework with us. And they woke up in the middle of the night to change our diaper. And they comforted us when our best friend, you know, didn't invite us to the birthday party. And all the things that parents do for children... And they advocated for us with our teachers and blah, 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 blah. And they paid for our weddings and they helped with this. And all those things. That will lead to a person then appreciating a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Shehu sibaso v'sibas kolavos al-Adam. Al-Adam, excuse me. V'yaroch b'machshavto kama v'kama roilo l'hizar b'avodas Baruch Hu. So what I think the Sefer HaChinuch is getting at, and this is the way I understand it at least, uh, is as follows. He's saying something I think very practical and also very profound. How do we honor Hashem? How do we love Hashem? Right? It's very, very hard. Can't see, can't touch, can't feel. It's very abstract. It's, it's so overwhelming, it's beyond us. So I think what the Sefer Chinuch is suggesting is the Torah understood exactly that challenge. And therefore, the way the world was created is such that yes, we have the big creator with a capital C, but we also have our two lowercase c creators, our mother and our father. And by us being able to respect, revere, obey, we'll have to see maybe, does that include love? I want to get to that before the end of this year. You haven't seen the word love yet. We'll have to see what that is. That's very complicated actually. Um, All of those things towards our creators with the lowercase c, towards our parents, and that is a way not only to show them the respect and show them the proper that they deserve, but also through that, if we are spiritually attuned, of course we have to be conscious about this, it won't happen by accident, I don't think. That will help us relate to the Creator and the upper... If I have to show respect for my parents because they gave me life, well, who gave them life? Who gives all of us life? Of course I have to show that to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And if I have to show Hashem, uh, my parents' respect because they help me with monetary things or material things, well, who makes all of that possible? So it's a way of relating to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And I think that subconsciously, whether people have ever seen any of these sources or not, I think that on a very deep level, um, I think people get it um, in, in the sense that 
again, I'm being stereotypical because obviously there could be exceptions to this, but I think there's a common phenomenon, which is that people very much, and just as I'm giving you food for thought, um, people very often, subconsciously for sure, but I think it's sometimes even consciously, will envision and relate to Hashem based on the way they relate to their parents. People who have a very loving image of Hashem, it's often because their parents are very loving. Parents, parents who are very strict and austere, very, you know, focused on discipline and all that stuff, I think at some point children start imagining that that must be where Hashem is. People who have very good relationships with their parents have good relationships with Hashem. And Nebuch, this is a very known phenomenon. People who have had bad relationships with their parents, especially if their parents are very religious, you say, why, is that? why should that have to do with whether you keep Shabbos or not? And the answer is time after time we see that it does. Because people, are, I think, are hardwired to get that there's some equation between our parents and Akarish Baruch Hu. And I think in a positive sense, when it's being done right, that's deliberate. That's, um, that, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Um, our parents do in, in very, very... It doesn't mean that they're perfect. No one ever said they're perfect. But this is what, and frankly, as parents, we're not perfect. We know that. Um, but this is both the opportunity and the enormous responsibility placed on people who are fortunate enough to become parents. That you're not just entrusted with all the physical and even emotional raising of these children um, or even giving them a religious education it's more than that. It's that you have to realize it on some deep, deep, deep level. Sometimes the children aren't even aware of it. But the way you treat them, what you will display to them, will largely impact on their ability to relate to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the more love we show them, even with discipline, which of course is appropriate, when appropriate, um, that sense of both love but also standards will be the way they view HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But if you're all standards and no love, that's also the way they're going to be appreciating HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And if you're all anger and never any comfort, these are also things that they're going to just somehow subconsciously assume. Because what the Sefer is telling us we're supposed to do, I think even without being conscious of it, sometimes we're doing anyway. Sefer is saying in a good way we should be conscious of it. Yes, think about all those things that your creator, your mom and your dad did for you. Now extend that one step higher to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So I'm not saying it's easy, but on a shkafic level, I think it's actually a very, very profound insight. If you're wondering how this could be a practical question, so the truth is that the, uh, there are poskim who wonder the following. Mirz Hashem, a few months, Erev Yom Kippur. Do you need to ask your parents for forgiveness? Assuming you fell short. I fall short every year. So uh, maybe some of you are perfect in keep it up aim, but I'm certainly not. So do you have to ask your parents for mechila? We know that in general, if you do a sin to another person... It's not enough to just clap al-chet. One of the al-chets is al-zil-zahorim It's in the al You say it every year. And hopefully you're sincere when you say it. But is that enough? Right? And I don't think if the answer is no that you should be sending out a group text to include your parents. If I ever did it, you know, one of those generic fake uh, things which are, you know, machami, 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 for what? I don't know. Like that's how people are. They don't even know what they're asking. Or, you know, right? So again, it may, may, maybe that's better than nothing. I'm not sure. With your 17th best friend or your long-lost college roommate, or whoever. But with your parents, so this is a big discussion in the postgame. Is it required to do that or not? Ironically, if you see Kibbutz Avayim is really a Benam Lamakom, so then maybe it's just enough between you and Hashem to ask for forgiveness.
But the more you acknowledge, and I think the Sefer Chinuch is probably inescapably correct, that there's at least some, if not a dominant, at least partial of the mitzvah is obviously interpersonal. They are human beings. So then it's not enough to just do the alchet in your sitter in the privacy of your own davening on Yom Kippur. You actually have to have a conversation with your parents and you know, apologize and ask them for forgiveness. So it's actually not just a hashkafic point, although I think the hashkaf is very important, but it also is an uh, important practical point. Any questions? No? Nothing? Okay. Um, so uh, I'm just going to tell the, the people on Zoom that uh, I have to end the Zoom and then start it over because it's going to uh, end. Um, I used to pay for Zoom, and unless someone wants to volunteer paying for me, I stopped paying for it last month. So now I think it ends after 40 minutes or something like that. So I'm going to stop it, but I'm going to start it again, and you're certainly invited to uh, join us again, okay? Let me just uh, end, the mess, end the meeting here, and I'm going to restart it again, and we will hopefully for the next 20 minutes we'll be good to go. There we go. Okay, it's on. Okay, continuing. Okay, continuing. So now, uh, for the second part of today's year, I want to focus on uh, three different dimensions. Again, we're just giving an overview. Each of these could be a full share in of themselves, but I wanted to give an overview of um, I wanted to give an overview of um, the different dimensions of the mitzvah: kibud in deed, kibud in word, and kibud in thought. Okay. So this is if you take a look at the bottom of the first page, we're starting with source number eleven. Okay. Source number 11 is the Gemara Masech Kedushin. The Gemara tells us what is involved in Kibud, what is involved in Mora. So Mora is a lot of don'ts. Don't sit in their chair, don't speak to them maybe in a disrespectful way, uh, that kind of thing. Okay, not what we're going to be focusing on. Uh, don't contradict them, things like that. But says the Gemara on the last line of source number 11, what is Kibud? Machilu mashkem al-bishu It lists six things. Basically, uh, feeding them, uh, clothing them, protecting them, and taking them places, you know, from here to there, things like that. Now, the truth is that the first time you see this, I think at least, you get somewhat uh, surprised that we think of Kibbutz Avaim as such of an exalted mitzvah. We're talking about the Makom and all these exalted theological points. And the Gemara's answer to the question, what is Kibbutz? is very, very prosaic, right? Very, very technical. You know, basically, if I had to sum up, I would say, taking care of their physical needs. And that is in fact correct. The basic mitzvah of kibbutz Ava'im is helping our parents in that dimension. Now, even though the Gemara gave only these six examples, it should not be a surprise that the post can point out that these are just examples. If there are other ways in which you can uh, understand your parents having some kind of physical need, those are also implied. Um, and there are all sorts of big things which would be in this broader category. So, for example, machilo doesn't just mean to bring them food, it might also mean to help them go shopping. Right? Machnisomotzi could mean taking them to the doctor. Right? All sorts of things uh, could be included in this. Some say making sure that they have enough heat in their apartment or something like that. If you know they're older or something like that, that's part of Malbisho. There could be all sorts of different... Basically, 
I don't think one has to overthink it. Any type of physical need is included in this basic uh, mitzvah. Now, what is, I think, striking, and I, I gave this to you, that's the only place I saw it quoted inside uh, in a text, but maybe no one else said it because it was obvious, but I think it was important that uh, uh, Rav Yecheskel Abramsky, who was one of the great uh, uh, early 20th century uh, post-skim, um, so he, in source number 12, points out, of course, that what is implied by this is when parents can't take care of themselves. Right? That's source number 12. What does that mean you have to help your parents get from here to there? It means if they couldn't do it on their own. Right? Now, why I say this is important is because I think if you think about it, again, especially for those of us who still have parents who are relatively young or independent, there's some, I think something that might be somewhat jarring when you hear this, which if you think about this, when's the last time you fed your parents? Attended to their physical needs? Right? Is most of our lives, certainly as when we were younger, and even now, for those of us who are fortunate, there aren't really opportunities to do this. Does that mean we're not doing the mitzvah? Are we doing something wrong? That next time I see my mom or my dad, I have to start trying to feed them? So the answer on the one hand is no, of course not. That's what Chesko Prophet says. No, obviously this is only an obligation when they can't do it themselves. Right? I don't think it would, it would be the height of disrespect, frankly, if you started infantilizing your, your parents and started treating them like a little kid. Of course they wouldn't appreciate that. At the same time, so it's true, you didn't do anything wrong if, thank God, your parents are still, at whatever age they are, but if they're in the physical condition that they can still take care of themselves, right? So, again, if you volunteer, let's say your parents live in Israel, so you say, you know, hey mom, you know, you have a doctor's appointment, I'll go with you, or let's go shopping together, I'll help. So that's for sure a mitzvah. But if you don't do that, there's not necessarily an Avera. So that's not what the Gemara was saying. The Gemara is talking about a case where they need your help. Making sure that they have all of this is the important part of the mitzvah. Now, at the same time, that kind of begs the question, well, if, thank God, they're physically capable and or live 6,000 miles away, or even if you still hadn't made Aliyah and you just lived in, I don't know, you lived in Tinek and they lived in Boston. So does that mean that there's no way to fulfill Kibra aim? So the answer is, yeah, if we stop this sheer now, maybe not. The good news is we're not stopping the sheer now. I mean, it's good news and bad news. Good news is there's more opportunities for the mitzvah. The bad news is there's more obligations. Uh, but in the basic mitzvah of taking care of their physical needs, in fact, it is limited to the A, when they need, and B, when you have the ability to take care of their physical needs. Now, if you take a look at source number 12, there's a very interesting question. This is Rav Pesach Frank, who was the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. He was kind of a younger contemporary uh, of Rav Kook, perhaps, um, but from that pre, pre-state period, the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim, Rav Pesach Frank. So source number 12, he wonders the following. Could you fulfill Kibarav Aim by asking a third party to take care of your parents? In halacha, you would call that a shaliach. Right? If you are not available and you ask someone to give tzedakah on your behalf, you get credit for the mitzvah. I mean, if it's your money, I don't know if it's their money. But you didn't actually do the mitzvah. On the other hand, there are plenty of mitzvahs which you can't do via shliach. So you can't ask somebody to daven for you. I'm very, very busy. So I asked uh, my spouse or one of my children or my best friend, you're a really good davener. Could you daven for me today? That doesn't work. Certain mitzvahs you can do with the shliach. Certain mitzvahs you can't. So he wonders, could you do kibarav aim with a shliach? You, your mom needs to go to the doctor, but you're busy. Can you ask, you know, if you arrange for a driver to take the mother to the doctor, or you call up one of these volunteer groups and you say, can someone or some Sirit Lumi girl or some high school volunteer, you know, can she take care of my mother, something like that. And you arranged it. So does that count as you getting the Musa Kibbutz of Aim that you did via a shaliach? And says, Rapisa Sipa Safranco, source number 12, 
He thinks yes. O Aide Atmo, O Aide Acher. Aide Acher, Nami Mekayim, it's Kibbutz Yes. On a technical level, since the basic mitzvah is about attending to their physical needs, if you can do it yourself, Matov, that's even better, of course. But if you can't, but you made the arrangements for it to happen, then that counts as the mitzvah as well. Now, I would add, I don't think I'm the only one who add this, but I would add this, and it's important for us to realize, is that's only true to the extent that what the parent wants or needs is that physical service. Can you take me to the doctor? Can you help me buy groceries? Can you help me? Whatever the thing is. But let's be honest, right? A lot of times what the parent wants is your time and attention. And if that's the case, again, I'm not discussing now where they're being overburdening or things like that. Could there be a line where they, you know, I don't abuse with the lowercase a. You know, they, they push us too much? Of course there could be. But to the extent that it's remotely uh, legitimate, um, if that's what they would really want, then at best, at best, having a third party do that is a partial fulfillment. I'll give you an easy example. I hope my parents, if they ever listen to this tape, won't regret it. Um, it still happens, it's still relevant now, I guess I'd say, but this goes back 26 years when we first got married. I've never lived in the same city as my parents um, as a married person. Uh, I haven't lived in the same city as my parents since I'm 13 years old. I had to go to yeshiva. Um, and when, when we were first married, my parents used to, move, used to come to New York to visit us. So I think that first year or so we were married, we didn't have a car. First two, three years maybe, we didn't have a car. So they would land at whatever airport in New York, then they would have to take a cab to us. Okay. But at some point, I think it was the third year we got married, we had a car. And it became assumed and expected that we would pick them up from the airport. And I remember once, it was just a bad time. They picked a time that was good for them. They told us when their flight was coming in. And my wife was doing something. I was doing something. And I either, I can't remember, it's been so many years, I either implied that they could just get a cab on their own, or I even said, I'll get a car service for you. They didn't go well. It did not go well. And, you know, I understood at that moment, it wasn't just about how do we get from JFK to your apartment. Right? Me going was the point. Right? Now, I don't, you, I'm not here to discuss, so in public, whether that's reasonable or not for my parents. Uh, but we go to the airport to pick them up. Mm-hmm. They have, I think over the years they've mellowed a little bit. I, I'm trying to remember, I think maybe once or twice since we were in Israel, also it was just impossible for us to go in the time that they were. And they, they understood, and they're like, no problem, just if you could get somebody to pick us up. I think. But 99% of the time, in the last 26 years, that they've ever come into whatever visit us, we make sure to pick them up. Not only because we want to, which we do, but because I learned my lesson uh, over twenty plus uh, over twenty plus years ago, but I think you could first of all that itself may be relevant to any of you. But even there'll be other examples of this, you know, where just saying, "Mom, I, I I got someone to go with you," or "Mom, I'll call a car," may not be good enough. You have to ask yourself, and you know, you have to be smart enough to know uh, the situation. But at least hypothetically, hypothetically, says the heart to me, if your parent isn't machmed, it's just a physical service that they need. So if you could help them, great. But if not, someone else could help them. It also would be fine. You know, I'll give an example. You know, my in-laws, you know, sort of moved in uh, to Ramat B'Shemesh uh, last year, uh, at least for part of the year. So a lot of the things, my wife, me, my sister-in-law, my brother-in-law, we've been actively helping them. But all sorts of things like, you know, set up the phone system, set up the cable, whatever, all sorts of things. Like, sometimes we could just call the hand, you know, if we just got the handyman to come or we called the, you know, the cable company or the phone company, that was fine. That was also the keep it out of name. I, I didn't do it. 
The answer is no. That was, so to speak, the, the repairman or the cable man or the phone man was my shliach in essence. My wife's shliach in essence. So I think that's the point. You have to know sometimes shliach is not going to be good enough. Uh, you have to know when your parents are expecting you more than the service. But if it's really just about the service, then yes, you can fulfill the mitzvah that way. Okay, that's point number one. Point number two, source number 13. Again, we don't have time to read all this inside, but just to give you the highlights. Says the Gemara, even though we just got through saying that it's all about physical service, your attitude when you perform the service is just as important. Says the Gemara in the Shokhrarach Pastins this way in source number 14, if you do something great for your parents, but with resentment, you've lost the entire mitzvah. And there even can be situations in reverse where the thing on its face seems like you're doing something very harsh to your parents, but if in truth, in truth, you're actually doing it out of love, that is the mitzvah. So the Gemara gives an example of a child serving their parents among incredibly luxurious and expensive kind of meat. But like throwing the plate at them, like resenting, you have to do it. Says the Gemara, you lost the whole mitzvah. And the Gemara gives another scenario, kind of it's, a, it's a wild scenario, but it just illustrates the point, where like the government or the king wanted the father to do some manual labor or something like that, and the child said, or it was going to, needed to talk to the father or something like that, and it was very dangerous. So the son says, I'll do that, and tells the father, you need to like, you know, he's like, you know, worked on the mill or something. He told his father, you know, you do that work, because I got to go to the king. And he's basically asking his father to do some very manual labor. So the Gemara, yeah, but in that case, he was doing it to protect his father and to love his father, because he had to go to the king and to protect the father. So even though that was manual labor, and that was fancy duck, in one case, he did it with resentment, in one case, he did it out of love. The attitude you do the missile with can completely change, and at minimum is a contributing factor uh, to the mitzvah. We have to be consistent, not only with what we do, but our attitude. And this brings me to source number 15, which I just want to read the one phrase inside, because when I found it, I was so excited. And that is, if you ask the typical parent, just a you know, just a man on the street, so to speak, you know, what's the most common way parents will express their appreciation for their children? How do they translate it? Nachas. Right? But... I, I, for years I was thinking, is giving your parents nachas, is that part of the mitzvah, keep it of aim? And people talk that way. Is it true? It didn't sound like that from the Gemara. If I cook my mother dinner, that's keep it of aim. If, I, if me or my grandchildren give them nachas, you know, that's nice. Is that a mitzvah? Says Rabbi Yona, source number 15, yes. Iker keep it of aim, la'asos lam nachas ruach. Bein bedvarim, bein b'maseh. Very, very beautiful. I mean, hopefully giving us many opportunities. Hopefully we're doing things that give our parents nachas. But I think what the Rebbe is saying is because even the feeding and the clothing and the this and that, it's not so much about that. Right? Think about it from a parent's perspective. Right? If I have a child, especially as I get older, who is providing me the services, right, uh, to say it in a kind of a silly way, that would give me a warm feeling inside. Right? It's not just about now I have a doctor's appointment and I can get there and, or I made Aliyah and I don't have to deal with the phone company but my younger daughter's son can do that for me. It's the deep, much deeper not, uh, happy, you know, satisfaction is I have a child who cares enough about me, who's a good enough person that they're willing and do help me. Right? That's much deeper. And that I think is what Rabbi Yon is suggesting. That, you know, broadly speaking, that's what Nachas is about. It shouldn't hopefully just be about vicarious boasting. You know, I, the, the, you know at, at the card game, at the Mahjong game, you know, my, my daughter got this promotion and my son-in-law got this or my son got that or whatever. And you're, I mean, I, that might exist on the real world too. But that's not the mitzvah. <laughs> but the mitzvah is giving them that sense that we care enough about them and we're the, fine, the kind of people who are 
respectful enough that we would do all those things for them. And the fact that we, again, I don't think it means just, you know, because I got a promotion at work and my mom's proud of me. I don't know if that's called keep out of aim. But leading a life in a way or doing things for our parents that make them proud of us and proud of what they've been able to accomplish, how they've been able to raise us, that I think is a very deep uh, insight of uh, Rabbeinu Yonah. Okay, so that's point number two. Point number three. Very, very interesting idea in source number 16 and 17. An interesting machloket. Again, really could be its own sheer in itself. When we talk about giving things to our parents, providing them for their physical needs, what if our parent wants something that's not good for them? Right, this could be very, very touchy. Now, it could be, in a certain sense, innocuous, like your parent got older and the doctor said they can't have too much sugar and they want dessert. That's one example. It could also be if you're growing up in a home where your parent drinks too much. Let's say you have a parent who smokes or has some other bad habit. So they ask you, bring me my, can you bring my cigarettes? Can you pass the scotch? Something like that. Or again, it could just be as they get older and now they want red meat and you're, they're not supposed to have it. Those kind of things. Do you have to listen to them or not when they've asked you specifically? So this is, I'm not giving you a, this has to be on a case-by-case basis, but you should know that it's a machlokas. In source number 16, Chubas Kolgadol, he says, push it, push it, if it's sakanas nafashos. You're going to give them something that could kill them? Of course you don't listen. That's obvious, he says. But even if it's just something that's going to be unhealthy for them. Are you looking for your mom? Risa, I think. Oh, Rafi? Yeah. <laughs> He's outside. No problem. Keep it up aim. Anyway, so uh, a mother's work is never done. Uh, that, I guess that's the flip side. Um, say, he says if it's just going to hurt them, in source number 16, he thinks you don't listen to them. You don't listen to them. It's not good for them. However, the Birka Yosef, in source number 17, disagrees. If it's dangerous, don't listen. But if it's not really, really sakana, then you have to listen. It's not your job to make sure your parents have good habits. Now again, you can imagine easily numerous cases which are very, very gray. Right? You have an older parent who has high blood pressure and they're eating the wrong foods. Is that called sakana? I mean, is is each piece of red meat going to kill them? No. But it's a bad lifestyle for them. You know, is each cigarette... You know, each cup of scotch. So it's not, again, how to apply this on a real world level, that has to be, you need a Shiloh for that specific case. But broadly speaking, I think it's just fascinating that the postcom are aware of the fact that there can be a tension. On the one hand, yes, physical services. On the other hand, that's, only, that's presuming that that's good for them, which is usually true, but it's not always true. And when it's not true, we have to really think about it. Okay, last two topics, which we're rushing through, because I always prepare too much, and that's just my Yetzirah, uh, but they're both very, very important. Uh, and let's spend time on these. Source number 18 and 19, uh, and through 20, has to do with, there's a second dimension. It's not just Kibbut B'masa, but also the way we talk to our parents is considered part of Kibbut Aim. The really surprising thing, and I gave this to you in number 18, which is the Shulchan Arach, which is actually based on a Gemara, the way the Gemara and the Shulchan Aruch describe the idea that you have to talk to your parents in a certain way that's part of the Mitzvah of Kibbutz is a really weird case. I admit, really weird case. The Gemara describes certain situations in which, let's say you're in a neighborhood where people know your parents, and if you were to go to the store and ask for something or need a favor from somebody, blah, 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 if by mentioning mom or dad's name, that would be, oh, you're so-and-so's daughter, you're so-and-so's son, oh, sure, sure, that they would want to give it to you, even though you could get it without them. But since by mentioning that name, it will bring a certain level of cover to them, there's a mitzvah to do that. 
That's kind of a weird kind of situation, and I'm not sure how common or practical that is. But the principle which emerges from the Gemara is that there is a form, not only of the physical services which we started with, but there's a form of the mitzvah which is included in the way we speak. And the broader point, the broader point, is illustrated in source number 19, and Sefer HaCharedim, and he makes the point very clearly, source number 19, which is, Chayiv Adam, excuse me, Chayiv L'Chabdam Bedibor. One of the ways we honor our parents is the way we speak. Talking respectfully, right? And again, if you would ask the average parent who never learned the Gemara, just, you know, how do my, what do I expect from my parent, my child? So, I mean, I'm certainly reflecting my own personal experience. My parents are very, very mocked on this. You know, not to talk with chutzpah, not to raise your voice, etc. So it says, say for my parents are right. Ah, it's not in the Gemara that we saw beforehand. It says, say for based on these other Gemaras, Absolutely, the way we talk to our parents, let me do with what we are or not doing for them, the fact we have to talk calmly, respectfully, not raise our voice, etc., that is how we have to talk to our parents. But here is where I want to mention in source number 20 the kind of tension or fascinating you know, dynamic, which I think was always true, but I think is particularly sensitive to in the modern era, and that is that on the one hand, said the Sefer HaCharedim, yes, talk to your parents with reverence, talk to your parents with respect, Talk to your parents like you would talk to a king. And yet at the same time, source number 20, I think it's very, very compelling, the insight of the Archa Shulchan. It says Archa Shulchan, how far do you go with this? In many circles, maybe some of your kids, depending on what school they're in, they are raised and educated to talk to their rebbeim in the third person. In fact, that sometimes I've had it even with some of my nieces and nephews, where they're not even talking to the rebbe, they're talking to me about the rebbe. And it's still in the third person. Rebbe said this, not Rabbi God, you know, Rebbe said this, or I did like Rebbe, or what, and certainly when they're talking, right, so ask the Archa Shulchan, here I'm not here to discuss like educational, you know, school things, but says the Archa Shulchan, is that how you're supposed to talk to your parents? Well, we say you should talk to your parents respectfully. Should, you know, your child be, should you be teaching your children to speak to you in the third person? Does mommy want something? Can I help mommy with this? Now on the one hand, you might think, yes, the Sefer Haredim just told us, Talk to your parents with respect, with reverence, like you would speak to a king. Says our Choshulchan, God forbid. Absolutely not. That's not a chumrah. He says, because clearly, this is, again, this is source number 20. If you would speak to them like that, that would be creating distance. A parent is this very complex relationship. We don't want just the reverence and just the distance. We also want there to be a certain sense of intimacy and familiarity. And therefore, says the Archa Shulchan, you absolutely can speak to your parents in what he calls Lashon Nochach, or second person. Right? You, you can say the word you. You can speak in that way, in a more intimate, casual way, uh, to your parents, and not in the third person. If one would do so, says the Archa Shulchan, you're minamatmiim, then you're just weird. I didn't put it on the sheet, but the Chassam Sofer, in a similar vein, uh, makes this point as well. He says it would create a distance which would be unhealthy. So where is the line? You know, everyone has their own relationship with their parents or their children, and I'm not saying it has to be one formula. Some people could be a little... I will say this, you know, I think in the modern era, not so much in the firm community, but everything creeps in at some point, on some level, there's a tremendous focus on, you know, intimacy. I think it could be for a good thing, you know, more than previous generations, maybe this is a good corrective. Um, but I think, like many things in, in an outside society, it can go too far, right? There are families in which parents are referred to by their first name. Every now and then you hear about this in the firm community. I think it's scandalous. That, I think, is too much in the other extreme, 
where parents are taught, kids are raised to refer to their parents as David or Alana. I, every now and then I've, I've met people like this. It freaks me out. But again, on the other hand, again, there's a balance. So again, I'm, I, I'm not afraid to state my opinion unequivocally. I don't think that would be appropriate to refer to your parents by their first name, even if they wanted you to. I'm not saying it would be usher if they wanted you to, but I don't think it's appropriate. And I, and I would tell any parent, you shouldn't want your child to do that. That's too far. They're not your best friend. They're not your contemporary. But at the same time, to go so far as to think there's a kind of a distance and I'm scared and, da, 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 and it's like the Melech, and it's like the Rebbe, that would be a mistake. The parents have to have some kind of intimate, comfortable, uh, loving relationship with the children. So exactly where, I'm not saying your family has to be like my family, has to be like our family. Every family can be a little bit different. Everyone has, to, everyone has to find their own footing. But the idea that there should be some space, but not too much, I think is the key. Yeah. Oh, that would be... Oh, very good, very good. So that really requires, and maybe that'll be, if, if not next week, then at some future point, we give a whole sheer on step-parents and in-laws and outlaws. No, chas um, Yes, there is, I'll just say simply, there is a halacha of being mechabed your in-laws. Um, how you do that, that I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll avoid that for now. Um, I would say simply that uh, there, I think, the main answer is, what they want. Now the question is, well, if they say, just call me Jack, so there I think there's more room potentially to be Makel. I think for sure. I mean, that's not the same as your parents. For sure not. Um, if, if your spouse, again, I think also your, your spouse's level of comfort, because uh, a big part of honoring your parents is in a certain sense a respect you're showing to your spouse. right? By you honoring his or her parents, right? that's a way also of you're showing respect to your spouse. So if they'd be uncomfortable with it, then I think that would also be something to keep in mind. But if that's what's comfortable in the Kubal in that family, you know, I could see that. Again, I, I like it to, when I, you know, got married, and I think this is true for my siblings as well, but certainly when I got married, again, as much as it's awkward for everyone when you first get married, but, you know, I call my in-laws mom and dad. I've been doing it for over 25 years. They're mom and dad. You know, last summer my daughter got married. So we had the conversation. You know, I told my daughter, tell him he needs to come talk to me and ask me, how does he want me? Like, you know, we, and I told him, and he calls us Abba and mom. That's, you, know, that, you know, he calls us the same way my daughter calls us. I think that's appropriate. I, 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 what, would it be the worst thing in the world if he called me by my first name? No. But in our family, that's not what's done. And thankfully, I have a good son-in-law, so he's doing it. And I was a good son-in-law, I think. Um, you know, my mo- I, think, I think if you'd ask my mother, she would say, you know, in 50 plus years, she never referred to my mother-in-law, by, her mother-in-law, my grandmother by name. So she just, you know, just, you know, pass the ketchup. You know, you just kind of avoid it. You know, that's what most kids figure out, that solution. Uh, but whenever it's necessary, I refer to my mother-in-law and I just call her mom. You know, she's in my, she's in my context as mom. You know, then in parentheses I have her, you know, just to, kick, to distinguish her from my mother, you know, it says her first name. But that's just in parentheses so that I, when I'm going on WhatsApp, I know which one I'm sending. Uh, you know, the, 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 you know they, they like different links. You know, they, they really have to make sure I send them the right things. Anyway, okay, let's just finish up. I'm sorry we're running long, but this is such a big and juicy topic. I just want to do the last part, which is the fact that source number 21 is the notion that it's not only in deed, it's not only in word, Maisa and Dibor, says the Chayadam, source number 21, it's also in Machshava. How you think about your parents. Nothing you do, nothing you say. We've covered that already. Just in your attitude, the way you think about, not your attitude while you're serving them. We saw that already. I'm talking about just in your own privacy of your mind. You're alone in your room and you're, you're just in the car driving and your mind's wandering. You're thinking about your mom, you're thinking about your dad. How do you think about them? Says the Chayadam, that is also part of the mitzvah. 
and namely, he's very specific. We have to have the most incredible respect for our parents. We're not discussing now how that gets demonstrated physically or practically, just in our own hearts, in our own minds. We have to think of our parents as being amazing people, of being great people. Now this is not only a chiddush, it's actually quite demanding. You know, because what if your parents aren't the greatest? Again, when you're younger, hopefully you think that. But as you get older, you become aware of the fact it could be their own foibles, their own mistakes, or it could be your parents have no foibles, no mistakes. But your dad is just a wonderful, nice, middle-level, moderately successful person. Nothing great. Not great in business, not great in finances, not just a nice, basic person. What's wrong with that? That's what most people are in life. But yet, says the Chayotam, I have to think of my parents as being the best. What if they're not? So the truth is, Shlomo Zalman Orbach said he thinks this is just like, it can't be taken literally because it's just impossible. We're not supposed to be delusional. So he might be right. But what I prefer to understand the Chayotam is thinking is something that I think I saw years ago from Rav Palm. I think the way he explained it. Uh, I think you may have seen this from Chaim Shmulevitz as well. And that is that even it's true, again, as we get older, we have a more balanced and, I would say, accurate view, hopefully, of our parents. Um, and, they, you know, not every parent is, you know, the president of the this and the, you know, chairman of the that. You know, that's just not the way it works. And yet, I think everybody, every person and every parent has some part of their personality, something that they're great at, and at minimum, some moment when they achieve something great. And I think what the Chayodim is telling us is, like in life, again, this would be true, but this is good marriage advice too, I think, but it's also good um, parenting advice or advice. We always have a choice what we focus on. Everyone has parts of them that are amazing, that they really are great at, and other parts which are maybe average or even less than that, frankly. We can decide. No one decides for us. We decide which one we focus on. So, leave aside how this might translate into marriage or advice, but I think that's obvious too. But when it comes to keep it up aim, focus on the things that your parents are great at. In terms of, again, I'm not talking about how you relate to them. That's, we, that's, other, other, that's other parts of the mitzvah. But attitudinally, try to train yourself. I'm not saying it's easy. But he's saying we have to try to train ourselves to focusing on either the part of their personality or a particular moment, you know, even though maybe your mom or dad are the most, you know, middle-level, average, vanilla purple, but once in shul, somebody embarrassed her and my mom didn't respond and she was gracious and it was like incredible. Maybe that was once. Folk, remind yourself of that. There was a moment where he or she rose to the occasion where no, you couldn't be better. They were gedolim in that. And maybe there's a part of their personality. Maybe they don't make a lot of money, but they're really involved in their community. Or maybe they're not as involved in their community, but they're a really great doctor, or they're really successful in their accountant, or they're really, whatever it is. So I'm not discussing what's most important in life now. But it's a little bit of a game, but it's a game in a good sense. F- try to focus on and put your attention on the moments or the parts of their personality where they can or regularly even do achieve greatness. That says Chayodim is part of our attitude that we're supposed to have towards our parents, to really, really respect them, not just to act with respect. Says the if we're acting with respect, if we're talking with respect, but we don't actually respect them on the inside, what's the point? So he says, of course, it's not only the, the Dibur and the Maisa, but it's also the Mashav, how we feel about them. And last but not least, 
What's love got to do with it? Is love part of the mitzvah or not? We haven't seen that at all. Says the Chayadam, source number 22, he thinks it's poshut. It's obvious that part of the mitzvah is to love your parent. Now he gives three reasons for it, but the first two are a little bit cop-outs, I think. His first one is, well, you have to love every Jew. So of course you have to love your parents. Okay, but that's a little bit of a cop-out, obviously. His second answer is, well, we just saw that Kibbutz of the Aim is related to Kibbutz of Hashem. So if you have to love Hashem, so Mustam, you have to also love your parents. Okay, that's a little bit closer. But I think the, the, the better thing he says, the most powerful thing he says, is source number three, is the third thing that he gives us. I'm reading from source number 22 at the moment. But the third thing that he says is that there are sources that describe Kibbutz of Aim, kind of like what we saw from the Sefer Chinuch, as repaying a debt. Pira on Chov. So says the Sefer, uh, says the Sefer Chayadim, source number 22, again, this is obviously very much dependent on the situation, but hopefully this is the case. If you grew up with parents that loved you, then part of the Piraon Chov is to repay that debt by loving them. He says, I think it's very, very powerful. You take a look at the last line of source number 22. This is Bechlal the Piraon. This is part of the, the repaying of the debt to our parents. Ye'ehov otam ahava aza a boundless, incredible, passionate, not romantic, passionate, but you know, very, very strong love that you have for your parent, like they have for you. Not that you view it as kind of a burden, but you actually love them, and you love the possibility of helping them. This is part of, again, that reciprocity, that kind of debt. Again, we don't view it, you know, in a very, you know, again, I wouldn't view it in a, in a literal sense, like a debt, that may be a little bit of a turnoff. But that idea that Part of part of of aim is the hakaras atov. What they did for us, we have to we owe them in kind. So it's not just that they you know paid for our school books and sent us a sleepaway camp and they helped us with buying our house or whatever things people parents help their kids do, but they loved us, right? The greatest gift they gave us. So it would seem uh, obvious to say that you owe them love. Now I'm just going to point out something very interesting that the Rambam, source number twenty three, seems to disagree. It's very kind of uh, tangential. The Ramam is this, a very famous letter where he's talking about the importance of how you treat converts. And there's a mitzvah to love the ger. And kind of by the by, he mentions how all the times the Torah says to love gerim, and never says you have to love your parents. It sounds like the Ramam thinks that there is no mitzvah. Again, he's not thinking it's usher. He's just saying it's not, it might not be part of the mitzvah. Now, if, he's, if that's true, I can make an argument for that, by the way. Which is that it could be that if there would be a mitzvah to love your parents, it would almost cheapen it. Maybe that you, know, that you could make such an argument that, of course, most people, if they've had loving relationships with their parents, mainly you're going to—it's the most natural thing to love your parents. Again, if you've had, again, if you're in a, if you've had that, how could you command love? That's what I. Think. Well, that, well, that's again that, but we do command the love after the and loving Hashem. Now, that's a fair question, and Mefarshim discussed that even in the context of Hashem. But it could be, it could be the Rambam felt that it's almost like besides the point, to, or even maybe distracting, to command love of a parent. It may be, again, if you have loving parents, it's the most natural thing in the world to love them back. So that's what, again, so that's, so that the Rambam just seems to say it doesn't exist. So in source number 24, with this will conclude, so I, this is uh, Rav Zilberstein, quotes from his father-in-law, Rav Yashiv, that he felt it's obvious, of course, you have to love the parent. He says what the Rambam was just saying is maybe it's not technically part of the mitzvah, but he calls Das Torah. Says Rav Yashiv, of course Hashem wants you to love your parent. Whether he technically made it part of the mitzvah or not, maybe that's a debate. Maybe the Ramam disagrees. Again, the first source we saw, the Chayadam, and there's others who agree with the Chayadam, they think, no, it's part of the mitzvah. 
Part of the mitzvah is to talk respectfully. Part of the mitzvah is to help them. Part of the mitzvah is to do all those physical things and speak to them properly and to respect them in your heart. And yes, as a chayadam, part of the mitzvah is to love them. Either just because they're a Jew or they're connected to Hashem or as I said, because it's part of the debt you owe them. They loved you, you need to love them. The Rambam clearly does not go as far as that. But again, you don't have, you could say the Rambam means there's no mitzvah to love at all. And Rabbi Yashiv was trying to say there's a middle ground that thinks everyone, even the Rambam would agree, of course, it's the right thing to do. It just may or may not be part of the mitzvah. Again, hopefully, 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 any one of us who were raised by loving parents, so this is kind of all besides the point. Because of course we do love them. You know, are we getting extra mitzvah points for loving them? You know, only Hashem will know, and only, I guess, you know, at 120 we'll have to see in, our, uh, in, in the books that we get a mitzvah for all the love that we had for our parents. Hopefully, hopefully, it's the most natural thing anyway. Because if you had a loving parents, so then it's the most natural thing, you know, to love them back. Um, and if you don't love them back, that's really, really a bad midah. Um, on the other hand, again, nebuch, nebuch, there are cases, I hope they're rare, but they certainly exist, of people who do not grow up in loving homes. Uh, and then that becomes very, very difficult. And maybe it would be good, it's good to know that about this Ramam because that gives a little bit of flexibility. Listen, I, have a, I probably have more friends than even that I know about, but I have at least one friend that I know about you know, who's completely, completely alienated from one of uh, their parents. Um, that like when, they, when the parent passed away, like they don't want anyone visiting them. They don't have to talk about it because no, people hadn't, even know, hadn't heard the father's name mentioned in 20 years. They abandon the family. Again, there, are, there are cases like this. And sometimes there are cases not that were abandonment, but just abuse. I mean, I, I know, unfortunately, all these kind of cases. Uh, um, so uh, one, one of my first you know, Shabbosos in Baltimore, a woman came over to me in the shul. You know, I never barely met her to tell me, you know, she was already adult with, with teenage children. And her mother is still emotionally abusive and verbally abusive to her and she needed guidance on how she should interact with her. So I'm going to go tell her she's a mitzvah to love her mother? My mother's been ruining her life for 40 years. I once, paid a shiv- I once visited a woman in the shul who had parent just died. She was herself a 60 or something at the time. And her mother must have been... And her first words out of her mouth were, I'm so relieved. I'm not judging her. She, wants, what, she explained why she said what she said. But just you know, think about how sad that is. It's nebuch. There's nothing more nebuch than that. All right? So most of us, thank God, didn't have that. Most of us were brought up in loving, maybe not perfect homes, because there's no such thing. But loving homes, so it's the most natural thing. It may also be part of the mitzvah. Uh, and if not, I think we could understand perhaps why not. Uh, but hopefully, hopefully, it's, as I say, if we were raised in loving homes, then it's kind of a, a irrelevant point. But it could be that it's part of the mitzvah. And especially if we were given loving parents, and it's something that we should make sure that we are always working on, not only loving them, but knowing, telling them that we love them. I think, you know, that's, as they get older, it's more and more important for them to hear that. Okay, thank you.